I'm North. And I'm Mayor. We're friends from college. I like to say I was raised a Democrat and became a Republican in college. And I consider myself a moderate liberal. We found that we were able to engage in a civil yet evocative manner, and we're hoping to bring that to the wider public. So please follow the podcast, listen to every episode. Share it with your friends and maybe even join us as a guest. Welcome back to the North and Mayor podcast. Uh, Jonah, you can go ahead and introduce our, our guest. Sure. So I'm super excited to have this guest on. He is an incredibly provocative thinker, at least for me, and routinely someone that I want to run concepts by and who's really able to point things out that I'm overlooking. I think he's a really complimentary perspective to mine, and, and so talking with him thinking about things with him has just been incredibly valuable for me in my life. So because of that, I'm super excited to have him on, Moses Otomi. Anyway, Moses, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your your background. Uh, I'm a first-generation Nigerian-American, so my family came here in uh, 87, and I've been here since. We're all citizens now, no illegals here, can't deport <laughs> us. Um, and uh, yeah, I grew up in, I lived in California for a bit, but I mainly grew up in Las Vegas, uh, which is you know, Nevada is a purple state. Politically, it's a really interesting place to grow up. It's it's like a it's like a very large town in Kansas with like a lot of urbanite. It's just it's a it's a different place. A lot of Mormon population, large um, immigrant population. So it's really cool. Um, and then I got out. I traveled a bit. I went to school in California. Then I left. I went to uh, Thailand for a while. I was there. Uh, I came back to grad school. Then I went to live in China for a while. I think China will come up a lot in our conversation today. Um, it's such a major player in, in global politics. So we'll talk a lot about it, I'm sure. Yeah, and now I write. I um, write for a living and I write for a hobby until they'll pay me enough to make it a living. So I have I have read some of his writing and it's fantastic, but he oh, refuses thanks. to tell me anything about <laughs> what he's currently working on or show me anything. So I'm going to be just as excited as the average reader when when his material finally comes out. Thanks, man. Yeah, you'll never see it. So I'm hoping to to start off by talking about social media. In the wake of the Capitol riots on January 6th, I think there was a lot of contemplation about how we address social media because, at least for me, and I think for, for many others, it seems like the current courses is not sustainable in that there's not really sufficient curbs on uh, fake information and media bubbles, especially social media bubbles are getting so hyper uh, specific. And because of that, very self-radicalizing. So sort of the, the more specific a group becomes, usually that leads to, more and more radical content as it, it's uh, sort of self-confirming. So given that, we're, we're at this point where I think many people, probably most people, think that, so that something needs to change, but I don't think there's as much agreement, and I think there's a lot of hesitation around what we actually do with that. So some ideas I've heard float around would be, like one, an internet, uh, a, 
independent government body that sets certain standards for what is is or is not acceptable to possibly legislation uh you know bipartisan legislation around what what needs to happen possibly a repeal of 230 uh another one is you know possibly an international treaty and some people are saying no we, we actually shouldn't the government shouldn't regulate that's that that's dangerous waters possibly uh you know creating authoritarian tendencies and so I've also heard people who are hoping that maybe we can have stronger gatekeeping through non-government organizations, possibly that public pressure will be able to reform social media or potentially internal pressure within the companies themselves, you know, with employees and uh, high-ranking officials being able to push back around certain things. So I that's where I'd love to start, just where where you're thinking, how do we how do we come at this? Maybe Moses you can you can start us off. Yeah, I think there's a, I mean, there's a few levels, I think, on which we could discuss this. I think one, and I, so I'm a, I'm a supporter. I, I was, I helped the campaign in 2020 and um, I'm not in New York anymore, so I can't work on the mayoral campaign, but um, I'm a big fan of how he discussed how our um, legislators and leaders understand technology. And I think there's this big gulf between the, the generation that is in charge of regulating these technologies and the generation that intuitively uses and understands these technologies. And I think um, at the Mark Zuckerberg hearing, at some point somebody asked the question like, you know, how do you make money? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so we that the Zuckerberg hearing, the, the idea of asking how Facebook makes money if they don't sell a product is like a time traveler from 1900 trying to have a modern conversation. It's a pretty bizarre idea, right? Um, but that's that's the state of a lot of our leaders. That's where they're coming from. And and a lot, I mean, the internet is an, still somewhat of a relatively new thing and social media is a is a even newer thing. Um, there was, I remember I saw this tweet that said, uh, like our social media designers are now just now learning what anybody who was on a forum in the 2000s already knew that like, if you don't regulate something, it's gonna be full of racists. Like that's just what happens with anonymity and, and you know, widespread channels. Um, I, I ran a forum when I was in high school and that's exactly what happened if you didn't moderate it. Like it just fills up with racists um, and all kinds of, you know, wild stuff. So yeah, um, it seems like Reddit is a little bit ahead of the game on, on a lot of this stuff that they sort of understood the, the necessity of moderators in a way that maybe Twitter and Facebook are, are lagging behind on. Yeah. What was that? Um, I remember in high school there, there was this like, social media platform or something that like people could just post things anonymously. I forgot what that was called, but that was just, it was the worst you could possibly imagine. <laughs> it was nothing but horrible nonsense. So. Yeah. That's, yeah. And, you know, that's not even just social media. I mean, they've done experiments on anonymity relating to Halloween, how much candy you take all, you know, anonymity is a dangerous thing and mass right. anonymity with these sorts of, echo chambers and bubbles that form online with this distance removed from consequence and humanity it's it's not a great uh, situation reddit and you know reddit directly grew out of those early forums and i think it was created it's created to be a forum right that's what it's supposed to be whereas i think twitter and facebook are created to be these like kind of mass interaction tools they, they didn't have that early forum mentality and so we've seen what's happening um so i, th I think on one side it's the leadership that i think needs to be brought up to date, whether that's through a position in government, um, in the cabinet that whose job it is to oversee these technologies and, and keep us, you know, with 
in terms of uh, keep us on path or um, in general, they just all need to know better and, and administrate better. So I think that's one part of it. Yeah. Sure. Practically speaking, what do you think that would look like? Are you in favor of establishing some sort of regulatory body? Do you think we need updated legislation? What what exactly? How, if you were if you were in charge, how would you approach this? Uh, I I would advocate for a legislative body. Um, or or an office in government that oversees. Sorry, I would advocate for an office in government that oversees um, social media. So. At this point, to me, um, social media is is kind of it's becoming the fifth estate, right? Where I mean, it's having enormous influence. It's become this battleground for geopolitics. It has so much uh, there's so much at stake with social media that it, it almost seems irresponsible to not treat it as if it's an extension in some way of government. I mean, I mean, clearly Russia and China are treating it as if it's an extension of government to our detriment in some cases, right? And it, it seems negligent to not respond in kind. Ben, what do you what do you think? Yeah, I think that's an interesting uh, take. I remember uh, when, you know, a couple months ago when President Trump, uh, you know, got exiled from Twitter. I remember seeing a lot of conservatives saying, well, I guess Twitter's more powerful than the U.S. government, you know, and the president. And, you know, obviously, on, you know, in a literal sense, that's not true, you know, because Twitter has no military, nuclear weapons, nothing like that, obviously. But. But I mean, t- Twitter does, uh, you know, exercise pretty serious, significant power if it can control the conversation. It can really control the future of of nation states across across the world. And um, you bring up a good point. China and Russia don't really stand for that. And I think um, America, I think America needs to do something. I'm less sanguine about the idea of a government run. Uh, you know, of a government body overseeing all this, um, because, you know, I think, you know, if you're on the left, I think you should consider um, if you're uncomfortable with Donald Trump exercising that power, then you probably don't, then we don't want that. And if you're on the right, if you're uncomfortable with Elizabeth Warren exercising that power, <laughs> yeah. you probably don't want that because it's going to happen, you know, one way or the other, you know, because some people get elected sometimes other people get elected other times. So I don't know what the solution is really. Um, so we can talk would, about that. That would be my question because yeah. obviously the concept of having a government body starting to regulate public discourse, I don't think makes anyone especially comfortable, but at the same time, it, it seems like an issue where if we don't actually proactively do anything, then, then it's just going to get worse. So, if if you had to do something, if you were tasked with solving this problem, what what approach would you take? Yeah, sure. So I think I said this on, on our last episode um, too. Well, first, let me back up here. I think there are two problems when we talk about like social media, um, you know, and like national discourse. I think on the one hand, you have what is or is perceived to be, you know, political censorship. And on the other hand, you have, I guess, the spread of fake news, you know, on social media. So taking just the first issue there, I think that one way we could stop, you know, the censorship of certain political opinions. um, One thing we could do is we could add into non-discrimination law, um, you know, political views as a protected class. So, for example, 
Twitter can't discriminate against you on the basis of your religion, but they can on the basis of your politics. And that I don't think makes a lot of sense nowadays. Um, I think especially because there's less and less people are religious. And I think politics is, you know, we can disagree about this, but I think politics is kind of taking that, the place of religion in a lot of people's minds. It's, it's becoming the thing that most people argue about hundreds of years ago. It was what God do you believe in? Now it's, are you liberal, conservative, you know, socialist, libertarian? I, I hear you, but I don't know if I would agree that if I was to pick out the the greatest ill of social media, I wouldn't say political persecution is is the number one issue. So I wouldn't be against possibly pursuing that, but I think protecting political classes, I don't think would actually do that much to fix the current situation that we're having with social media. So do you think that that would actually address some of the real issues? Because what I'm seeing as the issues are radicalization and fake news. So that doesn't really address either of them. Right. So I think the, you know, for one, the, the political, what is, is, or is let's say perceived to be political, you know, persecution on Twitter, you know, conservatives being, you know, kicked off uh, of Twitter. We can at least say that's the perception, if not the reality. Um, I think that having that would uh, cool down the temperature around social media a little bit. Um, so maybe hopefully we could come together a little bit more. Um, but I, I agree ultimately. I mean, it's not going to do, it's not going to solve the problem of fake news. I'm less sure about what to do about what I said was the second problem, which is the spread of fake news, you know, and radicalization. Um, because I guess I don't see speech online as substantially different than speech in person. I mean, a group of radical people can get together in person, you know, and, you know, radicalize each other because of the first amendment, the government can't do anything. And I think shouldn't do anything. I mean, that's still speech. Um, if the government can decide some speech is radical and okay, some or not okay, and some speech is fine, I just don't trust the government in the position, you know, being put in the position to decide which opinions are okay and which are not. Even though there are some opinions, I think that we can all agree are not okay. Yeah, I think for me, maybe one of the first steps is looking at algorithmic issues so especially youtube is well known for for having an algorithm that promotes radicalization and obviously not because it's designed with that in mind but there's a lot about algorithms that only view engagement as the goal where whereas obviously the quality and outcome of engagement the impact of engagement is incredibly important so I think that there could definitely be some progress around that. Um, sort of moving moving forward a step. Can I? Sorry. Yeah, go, please. Yeah, yeah, go, go too far it. from that. Go for it. So this is an important point that Ben, you brought up, you know, kind of giving a power, giving powers to the government that you have to be willing to accept that the people that you don't like can also wield that power. I think that's always a tension that's brought up. And I, I think to an extent it's, 
it's maybe not the right way to perceive the issue, even though I admit that I perceive it that way as well. I mean, Donald Trump had the nuclear codes for four years, right? And I don't think anybody would argue that that's something they would have been comfortable with him having. And so I think that's that's the nature of what a government is. You have to accept that it has these powers and that, you know, then when, if you want something, you got to fight for it, right? I mean, the government has had the power to segregate schools. People certainly, some people didn't like that and you, you fight for it. And if over time, if you, if, if the arc of history or progress bends your way, I mean, it's something you get. Um, that's kind of how it is. And so it, I think, I also think that allowing the government to regulate it, given that we do have two essentially competing factions in government in some ways, you do, you will get something more moderate and agreeable than what these co- companies are doing on their own, right? I mean, Twitter and Facebook and Google and all these companies are notoriously liberal. It's, I think it's, even if you consider conservative a protective class, how do you enforce that, right? I mean, how do you, you say this this person, this thought or tweet is conservative, why, right? And you can't delete it because is it the, the person has identified as conservative or there's something about the thought that we can objectively agree to be conservative thought? I mean, I, I think where the government, I mean, to have, for better and for worse, Lindsey Graham overseeing what Twitter says and he has to cooperate with AOC, you know, I, I think, you're more likely to get something reasonable. And when you get unreasonable things, you have the job of the other side to fight back against it and change it. If I could just respond to that, Jonah, real quick. I guess you're, you know, the de facto moderator. moderator. Um, <laughs> you know, I do understand that. I, I think it's, I think that that works in theory, having both parties, you know, come together, um, you know, and that that should, I think, moderate things. That That, that seems to work in theory, but I think, I think we can all agree that over the past several decades, I think the federal government has taken more and more and more power. Um, there's much bit larger of an administrative state than there has been, which means that the party in power who has the president see, uh, you know, can actually change people's lives much more easily. And it's only one party that really gets to do that, whoever wins the election. So I think that while it's, we can say in theory, having the government regulate these things will you know, mean that Republicans and Democrats have to come together. I think it's really going to be the case if this happens, that when Republicans win the election, then we'll have a Republican Twitter. And then when Democrats win the election, we'll have a Democrat Twitter. And I don't think that's something that we really want to deal with. Um, I think that I think that will be bad, be bad just on the merits, but also it'll make, you know, the election so much more heated if people feel like if they lose the election, they can't talk with their friends over social media. Um, But I think more to the point, like to just address what you said about, you know, segregated schools, I think that the answer to segregation back in the day is to say, we're going to take this off the table. You know, like we're going to pass a constitutional amendment. We're we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to pass a federal law it's off the table. And I think that that should, I think regulating speech online or elsewhere should remain off the table. And I think putting it on the table is just going to increase polarization. There's got to be a better way to solve the problem. I don't know if there is, but I feel like there should be. I I feel like, I think what I, what I intended, at least with the segregation example, and it's just an example that came to mind, but you know, I think the idea was that we did turn to the government to figure it out. We didn't say like, Hey, every school can have their own policy or that, you know, every, every four years, the Democrats will 
or that Republicans will resegregate schools, right? Like it's, we got to figure this out and we'll, we'll talk about it. And whatever we come down on, that's, we'll, we'll codify it in a way that isn't easily adjusted. And, but I agree with you to an extent, right? I think realistically social media, you'd have somebody like Trump come in and be like, oh, you can say whatever you want. And then, you know, Democrats would come in and, and ban or, or regulate speech around especially race and gender and protected classes. Then the Republicans would come and loosen it. Um, it would turn into a bit of a battleground without some long standing substantial regulation. Yeah. I wonder if one thing, just before we move on, I mean, something I feel like that could be easily done, and I think this could maybe just be done with public pressure, is to just help people see the other side of the ideological spectrum. You know, like if, if there's someone who only views conservative content, like throw in, you know, Bloomberg, Huffington Post, NBC, um, you know, and vice versa, you know, throw in the Daily Wire, um, you know, to name one. Um, cause I think, you know, it's, there's no guarantee that people are actually going to click on it, but I think just presenting it might, might, uh, help. I think this almost perfectly helps a segue because I, I think, I think in the late, uh, 20th century, there was a law that when you covered content, you had to spend as much time on both sides of the issue. And eventually it was done away with, but. I can see something like that as, as really valuable in, in just that I know for me personally, listening to people on, on both sides of the aisle and having friends who disagree with me has been incredible and really, really eye-opening. And it, it, it sort of touches on what I wanted to, to touch on next, which is, which is very related, but as sort of the traditional gatekeepers of news as it was harder to monetize content and, and sort of postmodernism was rising at the same time. And, and so I think they, they claimed that the concept of neutrality was dead and that there was no such thing as neutral news. And so to try to pretend that you're being neutral was less helpful than, than hurtful and at least to me, it seems like a some motivated reasoning that they knew that if they started to pan, pander to their base, that, that it would be easier to monetize than if they tried to stick to neutrality. But I would be interested to hear both of your takes on, is neutrality dead, right? I mean, postmodernism states that truth is only is only local. Right. And so the farther you move away from an individual, the more nebulous the truth becomes or the further you away, move away from a culture or something like that. Whereas I think I take more of a platonic perspective on truth that that whether or not we can perceive truth, it still exists. In it, you know, absolute truths exist regardless of our ability to, to perceive it. So I'd be interested to hear that because I think that is a really core issue where if we say there's no such thing as neutrality, don't even attempt neutrality, I think it really feeds a lot of the issues that, that we're seeing. Yeah, this is a big topic. There's a lot to tackle here. So, you know, I I think in some ways what's going on with our media and social media is a, to an extent, a critique of capitalism, right? Um, where I think for a long time we believed that a profit incentive is a worthwhile uh, motivator. It's a good thing to use as a motivator. And I think we're seeing, at least in the case of, of 
mainstream media, it's actually a terrible thing in some cases to have profit be the primary goal. It creates a disaster, which is why, of course, we've always had government, right? I mean, we have some things that aren't aren't for profit. Um, I think we're understanding that when we said forth the state, we perhaps didn't take that as seriously as we should have, that it is an extension of government. It does have enormous impact on the quality of life of, of people. And perhaps um, it's not a good idea to have it be run by private corp companies who are just trying to make money. Um, I think that's an element of it. I don't know if maybe Ben disagrees and we can just start from there because there's there's a lot to go into here with regards to, I know we'd want to talk about narratives a bit. And I think narrative, when we talk about news and what is fake news and what is truth, we're really getting into that territory. Um, so I'll stop there and, and continue later. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's a good starting point. Um, I, I think that one of the problems with, you know, media and social media being for profit, I think is really a problem of human nature we don't like reading things we disagree with. So just people will choose to just stay in their own echo chamber unless they're really motivated, you know, and getting out there and challenging themselves, which I think most people like to think of themselves as that, but most people are not actually like that. So um, it's really hard. And I think just, just address, you know, the postmodernism point. It is, it's a hard situation. You know, if we live in a culture that says there is not the truth, but your truth and my truth, and, you know, everyone has their own truth, um, you know, and it gets worse the farther away you get from the individual when you're talking about, you know, groups and nations and all that. Um, you know, but I think, uh, I think postmodernism, no objective truth is just an argument that proves too much. I don't think we, I think, the problem is people are taking it too far is what I mean to say. Like, you know, there's no, you know, everything's biased. Um, so just like, you know, you can't trust anything, like throw the whole thing out. And I think that bias, acknowledging bias is something that we should, we should do. Like, I think it's good to be open and not deny your own biases, but just because a source is biased doesn't mean it's not also reputable. Like for example, you know, MSNBC and the Daily Wire, they, MSNBC, obviously liberal, Daily Wire, obviously conservative, um, you know, or, you know, MSNBC, obviously on left of center, left of Daily Wire, I think everyone yeah. could agree. Um, <laughs> saw Moses there, you might disagree with me on the MSNBC no, I, thing. I, but... I don't know if MSNBC is reputable. That's what I was. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Hey, I'm just, yeah. I am, well, I agree with that. Totally agree with that. Maybe I should pick mm -hmm. another source here, but <laughs> Pick your source left of center. AP News, baby. AP Where News. Let's do that. Okay. Yeah. So they both report different things. They're both biased. I think that AP News is probably not a good example for me, kind of acknowledging your own bias. But I think, let's say they did. I think that would be better than I think what CNN tends to do is just insist that they are not biased. They have no biases whatsoever um, and are so obviously biased. Um, I think holding on to this idea of perfect objectivity, if we just try hard enough, is probably not a realistic goal. And we should start instead by acknowledging, look, I'm, I tend to come at things from a conservative perspective or a liberal perspective or whatever. And this is what I see from with my own eyes. This is how I perceive the issue, I think is a probably a better place for people to start in media and social media. I wonder if some of the difficulty with that is what you 
articulated a bit earlier, which is that most people aren't motivated to read things they disagree with, unless, I mean, of course, they're looking for rage porn, which is a huge part of consumption nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. I mean, there's this, there, there is a desire to have people in authority speak what you believe to already be true. Right. And so now if you have Fox News saying like, hey, welcome to the spin zone where we kind of deliver things how we see it. It's not quite as impactful. And it's not, I mean, why would you go there when you can go somewhere else that said, no, this isn't a spin. This is the truth. This is how the world is. And you're the only one who's seen it accurately. Um, I mean, I love, I love the Hill shout out to Crystal Ball and Sagar and Jetty, who I'm sure are listening right now. <laughs> like, I mean, they, they do a good job of just saying what their bias is. I mean, they're very clear about where they sit on things and you know, I would imagine that's why it's not as successful as MSNBC, right? I mean, in, in terms of um, viewership, obviously not in terms of content. So I wonder if um, a system like that could survive. And, you know, and to a larger point, I think it's survival of the fittest, not survival of the best. And I think America is running to some problems with that idea where perhaps the things we might need to do culturally to survive are no longer the best things, right? We might all agree that internet censorship isn't great. Um, but if your enemy is able to leverage internet censorship to get a populace that's much more unanimously behind policy proposals, has a much higher sense of patriotism, and you know is more willing to comply with your directives, you're in a tough position, right? I mean, I, I know there's studies about like the Neanderthals and how supposedly they were like poets and musicians, and like we wiped them out, we like we wrecked them. And so great, it's good that you're good at poetry, but we can throw rocks. So you know, um, and and you, it's ultimately about survival and adaptation and, and as we move into conversation about China, which I assume we're, we're getting close to, I you think nailed it. You nailed the transition. <laughs> yeah, that is a segue. Yeah. I think that's where we're at. I think that's where America's at. We're in a position where we have these fundamental values that we need to start. We're at, we're at adapt or die position. And I don't mean to paint it so starkly, obviously there's more room than that, but no, I, I think you're, you're right on the money in that when I look at you, the U S versus China, it just seems like China is fully, is in a really ideal position for the modern age where they're able to control narrative they're able to control culture they're able to control their populace and they can do that that long-term planning that is really difficult in the united states right so if you want to transition to green energy or you know what they've done with the rail system and all of these things yeah it really requires you to be able to have continuity of you know, political continuity, which is just something we don't really have, you know, at best we get eight years in the United States. And institutional trust. And institutional trust. Kind of sure. touches on our idea of fake news, right? We have such a fragmented, we've accepted this idea that there's two aisles, right? There's two, there's two sides to this aisle. Like, you know, I see it here, you see it here, as long as we're able to come together. And China's like, no, we're just all on the same side, right? What, what, what is this two aisles business? Like, <laughs> there's one lane. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly the, I think, the Chinese Communist Party goal here. And I mean, they, they enforce, I mean, they don't just, it's not like everyone comes together in China. They, you have to be in the one lane. Um, and if not, you know, you will get severely punished. But I, I've heard some interesting perspectives from Moses that maybe that's, that's, the, that's the view from a thousand feet up. But for a lot of people in their day-to-day -day life, I think the idea that they just get to worry about their problems and what's going on in their life and for the most part unless you're really causing problems the chinese government's gonna gonna let you do you and and is gonna handle all of these things so you get to just 
worry about your job, worry about your family, worry about your health, worry about your kids, what have you. Whereas in the United States, right, we we are having to deal with lobbying for environmental regulations and like all there's all of these this big picture stuff that maybe you would argue people want to be dealing with, but I think a lot of people just want to be left alone. And I think that's ironically. I don't know what the exact explicit positions are for each of us, but I feel like that's a somewhat more conservative position, right? Is that I want the government out of my life, which means for the things they're doing, they need to, it's, you know, part of that is don't infringe on my rights and don't interfere with the things I want. But part of that is you guys need to be so efficient and effective. I don't have to worry that you're not doing your jobs properly. And I think in some ways the American government is struggling in that respect where a lot of Americans are concerned about the government interfering with their lives. Cause they feel like you guys are, messing can we curse you guys are messing yeah, yeah. things up right like you know a lot of us have to worry about covid because it's not like our government state or federal is doing such a good job that we could just kind of go about our lives and not worry about it um whereas people in wuhan now can that is something they don't have to worry about because their government took care of that you know through individual cost of course but like i think <laughs> yeah. you know I, I think that's a difference in governance model and in and i think it I'm I'm very hesitant to say um, one is superior and inferior. I don't really think in those terms. I think in a very Darwinian terms of survival and adaptation, right? Which one is more likely to survive and generate progress in their society over the next 100 years? I also think like at, as a Westerner, we sort of imagine if I were subjected to these types of restrictions and regulations, how would I feel? I would feel very oppressed. Therefore, the Chinese people must feel oppressed. But I think it's important to remember, like, they were born and raised in this. And, and so it's normal in a way that it's not for us. And and so I don't know if it's necessarily fair to, like, project how we would feel on, on onto the Chinese population. Interesting. See, I, I feel two things in response to what you guys are saying. One, this seems very – and we could – we kind of just spent the first part of the podcast, you know, deriding postmodernism, but this sounds very postmodernist to say, well, I'm, it's, it's not, you know, there's not one way of doing it. There's the Chinese way of doing it. And then there's the one's not better than the other. That sounds very postmodernist. It's not that far. Like, I still think there are certain ethical or moral concerns that I don't think are subject to postmodernism, but right. Like I, I have a major issue with what they're doing to the Uyghur Muslims. Right. I, I think that that is, regardless of your culture, is is unacceptable behavior. That, but it, at the same time, I can still recognize that China has been very successful in, in a lot of other in a lot of other ways, and they've brought more people out of poverty than essentially anything. And so I I am I'm trying to to weigh both the individual harm but the collective success of china right i guess i'm just having a little difficulty here with um you know and i don't think in this case this is a extreme comparison given the concentration camps um how gonna go holocaust i can see it i'm gonna go holocaust <laughs> it's about to happen three two one no but you know there's no question that the chinese government is efficient more efficient than ours, for sure. I'm not arguing that whatsoever. Um, I don't think anyone really can. You know, I mean, authoritarian regimes are are efficient. They don't have to worry about elections. They, you know, it's like a monarchy. They they can just power through what they want to do. Um, but, you know, other authoritarian regimes have been that way in the past 
before with concentration camps like Nazi Germany. And I think I would think we would all agree that it's not worth it in the Nazi case. So is the Chinese communist example, is it worth it to go that way? I think, and I'm, I'm perhaps a lot more postmodern. I'm a writer at heart, right? So I'm still, Fair a, enough. I'm still Fair enough. enamored <laughs> with these romantic ideas. But, you know, the reason we think the concentration camps are bad is partially because Germany lost, right? And, and I think that's something Democrats have always failed to understand is that there's this belief that, like, history will always, like, what do, what do they always say? Like, to Republicans, like, oh, history will look down oh, on you or whatever. History is written by the victors? I mean, that's that's the real truth. I think Democrats don't understand when they're losing election after election and lost Congress. They always think that like because they're right, they're going to win, right? And that's not how the world works. It's that you you have to win, and then you get to decide if you're oh, right or like not. Like the right, right and wrong side of history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're always on the wrong side of history. They always say that to like these yeah. Republican lawmakers. Right. It's like <laughs> shut up. First of all, shut up. You're not from the future. And second of all, like <laughs> if we win, we'll just write history, right? Mitch McConnell, after he gets his wins, he can decide on. The messaging around what happened. I mean, America had Japanese concentration camps that we don't talk about, right? Yeah, that's we, true. There's that's a presumption true. that we call them internment camps to distance ourselves from what we actually did. And so, you know, when you win, you get you got to make stuff up a lot. And I think that's why I'm more concerned about not whether or not China is an efficient society, which I think, as I agree, a lot of um, dictators and autocrats are. Is it a successful society? And I think that's the danger is that if it is a successful society, at some point they get to write the rules. And, and I read a very interesting article in one of these many publications that write long form articles about how um, China has been kind of working on the UN to change language. And it, it's a very minor change, but um, changing language from civil rights of, of countries and moral rights of countries to, to sovereignty, right? Saying it's, it's not about, uh, you can't, basically to stem American aggression, right? America can't be invading countries for civil rights violations if if national sovereignty is more important. That's a very small change, but it creates an enormous difference in the world order and in how things go on globally. And China can do that because they're winning. And so, you know, if that's how things continue to proceed, when the whole world views sovereignty as more important than civil rights, right? It's like, you know, no matter who you are, you have a right to dictate what happens in your household. When that becomes the global accepted view, I don't know. Then, then does it matter that we stood up for civil rights? I mean, we're gone now, right? We're less yeah, relevant. That, that's a, that's an interesting uh, point. I, I do agree that I think as a factual matter, history is written by the victors. You know, I, I agree with you prob- probably, you know, if, you know, the Nazis did, did win the war, I suspect that we would be living in a society much like man in the high castle. Um, probably, but I wonder, I guess two things. I, I wonder if we should, even though that's the truth, if there's value in kind of ignoring that and just arguing about values anyway, because I, I worry maybe that if we, if it's just, you know, I win or I lose and let's throw the values out, then I think that can get pretty vicious pretty fast. Um, but a question I want to ask you was, is there, in your opinion, is there like, how does, for lack of a better way of saying this, utilitarianism stack up for you compared to, you know, civil rights values or something? I mean, where does that, that rank in terms of having an efficient society or protecting voting rights or something for you? 
I'm probably a bad person to interview. I'm realizing I'm, I'm very <laughs> detached from all this, honestly. Yeah, like fair it's enough, none fair of, enough. yeah, it's, it's, it's not like something that has any emotional impact on me. It's, it's purely like a, uh, like an intellectual exercise for me. And so, um, in my, I mean, in my personal view, I, you know, I think you got to balance the good with the bad. I can accept that, um, in a lot of ways, my country is the greatest civilization to ever exist in the world. I can also accept that factually, my country did not consider me a person for a lot of its history, right? And that my my country regularly bombs and destroys the lives of other people who look like me around the world. So um, that's just something I can accept. These are This is just reality. And the total package is that America is a civilization. They have certain aims and goals, and they, they want to continue to advance. And there's evils that come with that, right? We're humans, we're animals, like lions kill gazelles. That's what happens. It's just part of life. And so I, and that's where I, I think you have to, the, to me, it's more important that a country um, is logically consistent. Um, what are our goals? How do we achieve them? What goods and evils fit within that? I mean, America's a military power. We're, we're an empire. We're not, China's a trade juggernaut, right? They're not, their military isn't what lends them credibility or influence around the world. So they don't, it would be almost bizarre if they were steamrolling tanks through Taiwan and places to get what they want. Um, that would be consistent with their philosophy. And America has to be consistent with this philosophy, including whatever e evils come with that. I, I mean, China is also very homogenous ideologically in, in some ways, ethnically. And so, you know, people who aren't down with that homogeneity might have to suffer for that. It's, it's you know, it's, it's not something I support, obviously. It's horrible, but I've never encountered an empire they didn't do atrocities so it really has to be an issue of um limiting it limiting it to what uh, is consistent with achieving your goals assuming you have some better goal in the end if your goal is for the annihilation of humanity or whatever then perhaps you know i i don't really know what to do with that but so you were you were pointing out that a lot of it a lot of this, the success of a nation has to do with its control and, and the consistency of of its goals would you say it's fair that the u.s has is struggling in part because of a lack of coherent aspirations or well if you were to take that same perspective and apply it to the u.s what what would you what would you say i think this is where we can use the word narrative right and hopefully we're more comfortably in my wheelhouse and i'm not speaking out of pocket as much but I don't know if the American narrative exists anymore, right? I don't know if there is a coherent American identity. What does it mean to be an American? Um, I think part of that is the fault of the left, right? They've done a, uh, a lot of work dissolving the some of the things we took for granted about what it means to be an American. If, I mean, obviously, they weren't doing that to <laughs> create mayhem, but I think some of the effect has been the dissolution of that. I think some of that has been the fault of the right, a much lesser fault to the right, where they've been trying to, they've been so resistant to the evolution of identity that things are breaking, just falling apart. And so, and, and I think this is where social media has become the oil to this fire. Um, it's easier now more than ever to only interact with people who have the same narrative as you. And so we have all these fractured narratives um, to where, you know, the president who's winning the vote, who's winning the election, isn't even winning the popular vote. That's that's a problem. And I think China's done a good job of, of writing their narrative and sticking to it and making sure everybody's on board. Obviously not everybody, there's plenty of dissent, but um, to their best of their ability, people are on board and people feel that they have hope in that narrative and they're moving towards a better future. That's something that a lot of Americans no longer feel. 
So what do you what do you think the Chinese narrative is if you had to put it succinctly? Um, I'm definitely not qualified to do that. I don't even speak Chinese, so you have to. It's I'm not I'm not giving you the option. Um, you know, China has its one China policy, right? Where they have this idea of unity and progress, and they, you know they've they've stuck to it. The, the things that are happening there. I mean, I text with my Chinese friends regularly, and even I left a few years ago, and things are different now, right? The amount of electric buses. Some cities are fully electric. Some cities are largely, almost entirely green energy. It's different. They have, they said, this is our vision for the future and everybody get on board. That's kind of their message. And they have a very clear vision of what they want to be. Um, they, they have the swagger of a superpower. Whether or not they've been given that label officially by some Western powers, they, they act like it and they've been making moves like it. They can build a hospital in five days. So, yeah. I mean, right. Yeah. They, you know, they, as much as COVID was a mess up on their part, the fact that it's been such a bigger mess up in other places is somewhat absolved them, right? It makes them look a lot better than perhaps they would have deserved if it had something that had been petered out, you know, across the globe, especially in the West. So, I mean, I, my family's African. We have a lot of contacts in Africa and Africa is starting to turn away from the United, I mean, the United States for leadership and for, for infrastructure deals and for strategic planning, right, of their futures. China's kind of taking that role. And that's, that's a big problem, not because Africa's a superpower, but because Africa is a place of opportunity in a way that the West used to be. That's where a lot of things are going to be happening over the next century, and we're losing a foothold there. So I cannot take it exactly what the Chinese narrative is, because I'm sure it's, you know, I'd have to be a lot more familiar with Chinese history and culture to fully articulate the exact direction they're taking themselves. But I can articulate the American narrative needs to be rewritten. It needs to be more clear. And I would argue needs much more serious control of social media to be realized. I think I think you're exactly right that the American narrative is basically non-existent now. I don't think anyone agrees on, you know, we can say like the big groups left and right. I don't think they agree at all, but um, I don't think, I don't think a lot of people agree on exactly like why, why is, why should you be proud to be an American? I don't think people have a general answer to that question. And I think that, I think that probably like most things, there's some, I think meeting in the middle probably here isn't as hard as it, I think people make it out to be. We've done some horrible things in our history. You know, Japanese internment camps, the way we treated the Native Americans, we broke treaties with them, conquered them. It's, it, it wasn't pretty. You know, slavery, obviously, and Jim Crow. We have a long history of that kind of stuff. I think we can acknowledge all that because it's all true. And I think that should be like the, you know, highest value here. We shouldn't deny things or, you know, lie or anything like that. I think we can say that that's true and also say that we've, I think, articulated these principles of freedom and equality at the beginning of our country. And we've progressively tried to make that more of a reality. And that's constantly a work in progress, but we're going to get to a place where people are free and equal as much as those things, you know, those, those principles are intention, obviously you can't be fully equal and fully free at the same time. At least I, I think, I think those two things are intention, but it also depends on how you're defining equality. True. True. The quality before the law are, you know, materially equal, but yeah. So I think, I think the American narrative that being so broken down is a huge problem because we can't, we're not all unified. 
we're not all proud to be Americans. Maybe some are, you know, have a warped idea of American history. You know, people who carry Confederate flags. I think that you can't carry a Confederate flag and call yourself patriotic American. You just can't do that. Um, a lot of people on the right would disagree with that, perhaps. But I think that's true. I mean, you know, the Confederacy of rebellion rebelled. I know I was going to say that like re- just literally the flag of treason. You can't carry that and, you know, call yourself patriotic American. So, but yeah, I think, I think that we have to have a national narrative and China. Yeah. I, I think China through perhaps uh, methods that I'm not very comfortable with at all. I think, yeah, I mean, they clearly have a national narrative that works. And I think we really need to get that together on our end yeah i i don't want to oversimplify the collapse of the american narrative but i'm gonna do it anyway <laughs> I, I, I lay a lot of the blame on postmodernism, especially the concept of uh inter- intersectionality mm. in in the sense that we're transitioning from this liberal perspective where it's all about seeing co- common traits common common humanity and we're moving to this it's this weird thing because the the ma- if you take intersectionality to the maximum, you're really just getting down to the individual level yes. if you really think about it, right? Yeah. Like all of us are intersectional to the to the extent of just being an individual, but that's not the way that intersectionality actually f- frames things. It it's sort of it's about fragmenting everything into all of these really small groups, and it's really hard to create any sort of national identity when one of the stated goals of postmodernism is like de- deconstructing things. So yeah. the whole idea behind postmodernism is just deconstruct everything, like take small inconsistencies or issues and m- put a magnifying glass on it to sort of expose how things don't really categories don't really exist. Things don't really flow together. And so when, when all of you're doing is sort of deconstructing narratives and speech and everything, it almost seems obvious that the result is going to be an incredible lack of uh, unity on on anything. I don't think that's wrong, and I, I and that's a weird way to phrase it, but I, you know I I do think part of the reason intersectionality has flourished is because of the lack of control over the American narrative. Um, so, on one aspect of it, I think. I mean, you can literally control social media. I mean, there's ways intersectionality would not flourish to what it is today without social media, without the ability to really um, isolate yourself among these echo chambers. So I think part of it is the fact that people can break off from mainstream messaging and just kind of really think about what's going on and really break apart how our society works. Um, I think part of it is, is kind of how Ben articulated kind of America earlier. And I think there's this idea in America that we used to be certain things, but we're getting better now. And I think when you have people, you know, people aren't, people aren't dumb. They're kind of dumb, but like people are observant. Right. And I think when you have people looking around and saying like, how is this better? Right. Like what, what about, what about this is better? It, it starts to force them to kind of have to break things down. Like, wait a minute, I'm being told this is better, but I'm looking around and things suck. So I need to figure out what's going on here. And I think that's where there's this tension between survival and truth. In America, at least states that it has this value of truth that I think might be a bit, over, it, to, to an extent, it's a bit unnecessary, right? Because 
we did these horrible things to survive, right? Slavery was efficient and profitable. They didn't do it. I mean, it was also racist. They did it because there's an element of evil there, but they also did it. If it was a huge economic detriment to have free labor, we wouldn't do it. You did it because you were trying to build a country and you thought these people weren't human. And you said, why not? Why not have this free labor? Um, we do a lot of things. That we, there's a genocide going on in Yemen that we're supporting with our weapons. We're doing that not because we hate the Yemenis, because we think it's an efficient way to go about keeping our society afloat. We do all these horrible things for survival to continue existing, but we try to couch it as this like moral, you know, like, oh, we're, we're getting better. We're not. We're the same animal we were 300 years ago. We've always been this animal. We're always going to do what we need to do to survive. And I think the more plain that truth is, the less there is to question. I remember it, watching news in China and seeing the censorship that goes on there. It's very blatant. It's not at all hidden. <laughs> you watch it. It'll cut commercial break for eight seconds while they talk about something they shouldn't be talking about. And then it'll cut back. Like, it's not as if some Chinese people are like, you know, what are they really trying to say? It's like, no, we know what they're trying to say. And you're not allowed to see it. Whereas here, I think our censorship is this attempt at subtlety and spin where you might think you're getting actual objective information. You almost never are. And that to me is, I think the tension needs to be resolved if we want to continue to survive in a world that China's increasingly getting control over. It's very hard to damage the credibility of the Chinese government because they're so clear about what they're doing, what they're not doing. Right. How do you say they're liars when we know they're just not telling us things? They may, they're, they're admitting to it. Yeah. We're not telling you things. It's censored. You can't say this online. You can't make fun of Xi Jinping. That's just how it is. Whereas we are constantly struggling to apologize for things that we did because we thought it was the best thing to do and because it got us to where we are today. I guess I'll push back against the the idea that we're just as bad as we as we ever were. I don't think that's necessarily true. I don't think human individual human beings are any better or worse than they were a thousand years or ten thousand years. Right? Ironically. I think that's the piece that people often miss. They're like, if I lived during slavery, like I wouldn't have had slaves. It's like, yes, yes, yeah, you, you would have. Like, <laughs> but yeah. I do think culturally and politically, we're better than we ever were. I mean, I think on, if you look at a lot of the objective measures, like poverty and war and famine and a lot of these things, genocide, I, I think we actually are across the board in a better place i just think that we've never been more aware of every bad yes. thing that's happening in the entire world right we're yeah so i i think it maybe is a in abs in absolute terms we're in a much better place but from a subjective perspective yeah in terms yeah. of perception i can understand why people feel like it's just as bad as it's ever been i definitely think like for, you know plainly visible i think like walk outside look around your place you're probably better off right now than you would be you know 50 years ago or something just in you know absolute terms probably you have a very nice microphone moses so i'm i'm looking at i'm looking at that mic. <laughs> i promise it's not uh, as nice as it was. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i think that what america i may have been unclear earlier i did not mean to say that you know we did all these horrible things but now we're better, you know, in a sense, it was kind of worth it. We did some horrible stuff, but now we're great. I feel like that that argument could be made for Nazi Germany, for an example. I mean, what if, for example, they had to do some horrible things and then created a utopia? I'm Nazi not Germany twice. We are on. I know fire. I wanted to pick the China example, but, you know, yeah, yeah it's fine. <laughs> 
maybe I want this podcast to be aired in China, so I'm not going to go there. <laughs> no, I, I don't think that's an excuse. I don't think efficiency or later success is, is an excuse for atrocities now. I do. Th- so I, I don't want to say that. What I meant to say was we had, we articulated these principles, right? Of freedom and equality, basically, generally, you know, that all people are created equal. People should be treated equally before the law, generally free. And not everyone was like those principles were not actually lived up to. So we mm. wrote them down on paper. We didn't practice them. And I think we've been, we've, we're increasingly practicing them more, but I think the key difference is we articulated the principles at the beginning. I think because human nature is what it is, we just like weren't able to do that. And that that's wrong. I think it's quite a different thing to say, we don't really care about people's freedom or, you know, the fact that they're equal or whatever, we're going to do what we're going to do. And you either, you know, get on board or not which yeah. I think is the more authoritarian, you know, one party rule thing that they have in China. But I could, you know, I, again, I'm pretty confident in that, but you yeah. probably you lived <laughs> in China, I imagine. I yeah. Picked oh, up yeah. on that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I was there for a year and a half. I, before I come back to the, I mean, I'm much obviously more well comfortable speaking about the American narratives, but I will say he was just there beating up Chinese kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I was kickboxing out there. Not I wasn't fighting children, thankfully. Um, I will say that I do think um, I remember being stunned at how little interaction I had with the police in China. It was I almost never saw them. There's it's not the police state it's painted out to be. Obviously, I'm not at all saying the government doesn't crack down on things. I also never was talking shit on social media, so I don't know what that feels like, you know. But there is a lot of respect for individual sovereignty in China. Again, I think part of the reason they're arguing at the UN that sovereignty should become the language we use is because they do value that i mean the, the, i don't in america we kind of have this mythology of the castle doctrine right the man is the, is the king in his own castle but to kind of live it over there you do have a lot of autonomy within your own home um and within your own business i i remember one time the immigration police came to my school and i didn't have my passport and they were like well, bring it next time and they left that isn't how immigration necessarily goes down in america if ice raids a building you know they might just take you away to an internment camp so not to say that China's more free than America, but it's a very it's a different system that is very difficult to compare to how we exist here. As far as are we better now and kind of the progress we've made, I think it's it's a tension. I won't paint it as is you know as extreme as perhaps I might have portrayed it before. There there's definitely an argument to be made that we are better now, but I definitely think there's an argument to be made that we are the same animal, right? I mean, um, somebody who's you know, somebody who, when you gain money, you don't necessarily change as a person, right? You just have opportunities to express different parts of yourself. And I think the fact that America's eliminated poverty doesn't necessarily, I mean, China's eliminated way more poverty than we are. So, you know, it's, that doesn't necessarily mean China's a great country now that thinks everybody should have money. That's clearly not what they are. You know, it's, it's that, you know, sometimes opportunities afford you to do certain things that, you know, I think America's been good at recognizing the, the ability of every individual con- to contribute helps the nation. So the more opportunities a person has, the more resources they have, the better off we all are. Um, so there is some motive to, well, automation is perhaps changing that, but there is some motive to increase the standard of living of the individual. But at the same time, can you pin down like what you mean by like, we're the same animal? Because if you're, if you're trying to say like human nature hasn't changed, then I agree with you. I think that's a bit of a cop-out, right? Is that not all humans are the same. Not all, I mean, America's America. It's not humans. I mean, there's, there's been way more societies that existed before us, and there'll be many that exist after us, and there's many that exist concurrently. Um, not every society 
practiced, most societies didn't practice chattel slavery. That was us, right? Um, we're the only society to nuke anywhere. And we did it twice. That was us. That was in 1945, after we'd already abolished slavery and, and you know, agreed that human life has some value. Um, I think we, we always look for these exits to where we can say like, oh, we're better now, or it's just human nature, where we can just be us. That's who we are. And I think China's kind of owned who they are. We are a country. We don't value freedom of speech. We don't, right? We don't necessarily think freedom of religion is more important than freedom of expression. Like that's just who we are. And America is constantly apologizing and trying to kind of gaslight people into thinking it's something it's not. We are the greatest military empire the world has ever seen. You don't create a military to hold hands with people. We are constantly at war and we have been since we started. We've killed millions of people through direct combat, through sanctions. We've suppressed economies. We've uh, overthrown democratically elected leaders. I mean, these are things we did and still do. It's not like we stopped all this stuff, right? And I guess I want to push back against that though, because when I think of human beings, when 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 human beings encounter scarcity, yeah. I think we can really see the worst of humanity come out. And when human beings are in a situation of plenty, I think we can oftentimes see the the best of humanity come out. So. Again, when I'm saying that America is better today than they were, I'm I'm not saying that, you know, to the extent that you can generalize human nature, that yeah. we're like more moral people than we were, but more that given that our situation has improved to the extent that we have the luxury of being different. And I also I was, I was listening to a podcast a few months ago and and one of the commentators was saying that it doesn't really make sense to compare America and the things we've done to just other countries because not many countries have been in the position that we have been. So it really only makes sense to compare America to other superpowers and to for for that matter other hegemonic superpowers given that we we experienced essentially unchallenged um world world dominance for a while and so he said in that light actually we've been fairly benevolent if you if you are comparing us in that way and so i'm not here trying to say that like america's never done anything bad or we're not still currently doing things that are abhorrent but and 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 maybe this is motivated reasoning but i i think we are whether it you know, not because we as individuals are better, but given the situation that we find ourselves in 2021, I think we're a more benevolent nation than we were 50 years ago. I see what you mean there. And I don't necessarily disagree with that, right? I think Parasite, which you didn't like as much as I did, but uh, Parasite articulated that really well. It's, it's easy. There's a line in it where the lady says, it's easy to be nice when you're rich, right? If I was rich, I'd be nice too. Like, <laughs> It's very easy to be generous when you have things to give. I don't necessarily disagree that our position has changed and that we behave differently. But I think when we say that, which has been a message that's come out a lot recently, especially in light of the, the Capitol building incident, when we say that's not who we are, it's like, well, no, that's, you know, there's a difference in individual change and circumstantial change. And I think there's this um, desire to argue for in, for inherent individual change in what America is, rather than what you just articulated, which is simply a circumstantial change, which I could definitely get behind. Our circumstances have changed. I don't think we have changed. And I think 
you know, if you were to throw us back into a situation of scarcity today, I don't know if we'd handle it that differently than we handled it. Then our forefather, I mean, these are people, these are our forefathers. They weren't idiots. I mean, we had the smartest people in the world designing our constitution. They're not dumb and they're not necessarily immoral. They were products of their environment and they did what they felt was right. And we're still doing the same thing. And I think the key to reining in the American narrative and getting some control of it is making that argument is that this is who we are. This is what we're trying to do. And this is what we're willing to do to get it. And I think you'd have a lot less confusion and a lot less um, fracturing of the American identity. I think that's a perfect segue to just. No, these more segues a... are unreal. I know. <laughs> you can tell he's a writer. Yeah. <laughs> so this is just bringing us into just talking about literary narratives or, or really narratives unbounded by a political framework or political perspective. Yeah. How how do you create a narrative? How do you maintain a narrative? What makes for a strong narrative? What erodes a narrative? And this is purely from a writing perspective. What what makes for a strong narrative? Oh, man. I mean, there's been probably thousands of textbooks written on this by people who are smart. There's a lot of different philosophies on on what a narrative is. I, I tend to side on narrative is a um, emotional navigation of tension, right? Where to me, it's not a narrative if there's no tension. There needs to be some friction, some competing ideas or truths. And, you know, ideally, the more effective a narrative is, the more layers of that it has, right? Um, but it needs some base layer of this isn't right, or this needs to be changed, or this needs to be fixed. That's the most basic intro point of narrative I can give. I'm not sure where, where I should go from that. Is there, is, are there an... Is there an ideal number of layers to a narrative? It, does does a narrative become messy when it has too many layers, or, or do you not see that? Probably, as a, yeah. As an but issue? I mean, any narrative designed by a human or even a team of humans, you know, we're not gods. I think there's a limit to how sophisticated we can articulate things consistently. Even masters of their, I consider Dave Chappelle a master of his craft. And when I see the narratives he generates, there's, you know, we've talked a lot about the Bird Revelation. I think he managed to take one narrative and have it and echo it across an hour in, in as many different forms and permutations as there might be for that single narrative. And so that's the ideal, you know, that's, that's the goal, the closer it gets to that and, and other such, you know, masters, you know, executing their narratives, the better. Did you feel like short stories are a more provocative or, or successful narrative, uh, literary format? Definitely not successful in terms of readership and finances, but, it, you know, it depends on the role that writing needs to play in society. And I'm, I I think I'm perhaps like overly pragmatic sometimes. I mean, obviously I have thoughts and emotions and whatever, but like, you know, to an extent, why, why do we even have writing? What's the point of it? George Saunders has a book out right now analyzing the, the Russian greats. And he, I haven't fully read it, so I don't want to speak for him, but, you know, from the reviews and what I've heard, I mean, he's, he's arguing that literature occupied a different place in Russia. And that's part of why it was so good. Right? It had a different function. And I think here, if, if the goal of writing is to entertain, which seems to be what it does most of in terms of who reads and what they read for, then, you know, whatever, just keep it entertaining. Tell your story, which isn't bad. You know, people need to be entertained. And I just love the way you framed that. Yeah, whatever, <laughs> you know, I guess it's fine. Look, I'm trying to sell books, too. I also like to Listen, entertain. You're but... just a true artist at heart, and it, and it breaks <laughs> really, your spirit that you're really not. entertaining the masses. <laughs> I'm really not. You're like Shakespeare over here. There's also an element of, of deconstructing the ego, right? And and anybody who thinks they don't have to be entertaining, there's an, there's a strong element of ego there because you know 
there's been way more there's smarter people that have entertained i mean socrates was entertaining right like <laughs> unless you're going to argue that you're what you're saying is more important than what he has to say and can't be possibly you know uh reduced to, to entertainment so i don't know how i don't i don't want to feel like i'm uh moving too far from the the political no i i'm i'm equally as interested in in your perspective on narrative and i oh okay and i think yeah in a weird way we we maybe attribute like some sort of supernatural significance to political mm-hmm. narratives, but just thinking about it, I don't necessarily think it's more complicated to maintain a political narrative than necessarily a literary narrative. And it's almost like if we took that more basic perspective, like how do you how do you maintain a literary narrative? And we're just like, all right, we're going to do that for politics. Maybe we, maybe we'd be more successful. You know, and I think honestly, I think the people who write political narratives. I mean, a lot of them do write fiction novels, right? Jake Tapper has a book out. Bill Clinton has a book out. So, you know, I, I don't think there's that. I don't think, you know, the Venn diagram is too far apart. I think there's a lot of overlap in those. And, you know, I think the key, perhaps, the key to a narrative that perhaps is most relevant politically is the growth, right? I mean, and any story or narrative needs to have this, um, I call it draw distance. You guys play Video game? You, I know you play video games, Jonah. Ben, I don't know. All the time, play. we we play Call of Duty together. <laughs> okay, dope. You know, it's not as much in new school games with the processing power, but especially in like PS1 days, Xbox days, sometimes you could like you would see the distance the game has rendered. Like there's a point where it's just like fog. Like the game had, and then as you run forward, the game continues yeah, rendering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's important for a culture or a story to have, um, you have to be able to see where it can go, right? And I think a good story is misleading you, right? That that's not where you actually end up. It's clever that way. But a, a, a cultural narrative, I think it's at its strongest when people can see where they're going. When you see, okay, this is what we'll be, and this is where this is what we can be if we stick to our values. I think America used to have that, right? Um, and I don't think it's something we've lost forever. I just think it's something we need to put a lot more work into reigniting. I think a little bit about um, Amanda Gorman and her speech, her, yeah. her poem that uh, she read at uh, Biden's inauguration, and how that was maybe a successful iteration of a new American narrative of a country that sort of what Ben was getting at earlier has sort of fallen short on the promises that were originally made and is sort of a, a, a broken nation trying to become whole again. I don't, I don't know if that's sufficient, if it's a sufficiently galvanizing, but I think there's a lot of elements to her poem that, could be successful narrative elements for sure and i you know i i do think um even if just out of job security self-interest like we need more narrative writers involved in in key pillars of society i mean that's i think anybody if you had a you know i don't know twitter's team but i think if you had somebody who was whose interest it was to keep some sort of narrative cohesion in this culture i think twitter would look very different right facebook look very different and you get a lot of you get a lot of good out of it. I think it would help us a lot. Um, and I, I do think she articulated a narrative that clearly resonated with a lot of people. I'm sure a lot of people ignored it and thought found nothing useful in it. But, um, you know, you don't need everybody on board <laughs> for a cultural narrative. Do you feel like we're not doing enough state propaganda? I think our methods of propaganda are less effective due to social media and the way the Internet functions. Yeah, I think without um, any sort of Internet regulation, it's very difficult to propagandize in the way that we, we typically have. Yeah. Cause, I mean, our government has as much influence on propaganda as the Chinese government does. Right. I mean, if the goal is to spread information or misinformation through Twitter, like 
cool. I mean, good luck. <laughs> you don't have any advantage. Whereas earlier in the 20th century, you know, if you're go if you needed to spread misinformation, you could have Walter Cronkite do it, right? You had a, a channel that you could control. Now it's it's up for grabs. Yeah, I think that's one thing that you've really illuminated for me is that every state does propaganda and it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's 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 how you maintain that narrative. And and watching the inauguration, I was like, oh, this is good propaganda, right? This is being like, this is who we are as Americans and, and reinforcing that message in a way that I don't think we do enough. And and yet the most attention from the inauguration was Bernie, right? I mean, that's why it's so it's so hard to control these messages because yes. Bernie's getting way yes. more engagement and attention than anything Biden or even to an extent uh, Amanda said. So it's tough, right? <laughs> all these squirrels were just like, oh, nut. Oh. <laughs> yeah, Biden was giving, you know, his version of the American narrative and no one cared. Watching the Pence debates and we're like, oh, my God, there's a fly on Pence. <laughs> a fly. Yes. Before you even said it, I knew what you were talking about. <laughs> but I do agree. I mean, I think that, I mean, people learn a lot about the world, you know, through politics or whatever. But I think ultimately people decide who they are and what they value from stories. And I think that, yeah. you know, we do yeah. need better stories, I think, you know, better fiction. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I think in our culture. from within publishing, I'm not, you know, deep into the beast yet, but it does seem like there's been a, um, you know, postmodernism is just everywhere now. There is, there's an exception, there's acceptance of intersectionality as a truth that needs to be realized, right? We need to see how this impacts individuals and what their opportunities are and make sure those roadblocks are removed. And so I think publishing is, you know, um, moving in that direction in the way that a lot of society is. But again, I think everything needs checks and balances and everything needs a deliberateness with which it's executed. And um, I, I'm not convinced that even novels are the primary story mediums anymore either. So that's, that's something to consider, right? Does Netflix need to be held more responsible? Should we have, you know, government regulation of Netflix to really pump out better propaganda. Um, no, I, I was thinking about that the other day, just that uh, like long form writing is still the gold standard for conveying knowledge from an academic perspective, but, but the consumption just isn't there. People are like, why would I read 300 pages when, you know, somebody else can distill it in, and obviously, there's a lot lost as you continue. You know, there's there's a marginal loss for whatever extent of distillation happens, right? If you distill it down to a tweet, the cost might be too high. But but I, I definitely think it, you know, after reading a book, I'm like, oh, you know, I really wish I would have read, like, <laughs> one article about it. I mean, yeah, this is yeah. one book called, like, The Five <laughs> Love Languages. The whole book is just... The five love languages, and I can explain the five love languages to you in two minutes tops. It's just unnecessary. So, it there there is I can there's attention there, but obviously there there are some long form works that are absolutely worth every every word every page, right? For sure. And I think that's especially true in fiction because with nonfiction, you're trying to glean the information more than anything. I guess. Maybe I'm projecting. For me, reading nonfiction is about learning, whereas reading fiction is about 
is about enjoyment. And so there's, there's not necessarily as much of a cost to having a longer work, right? No one's thinking Lord of the Rings should have been a lot shorter. <laughs> I mean, I would argue. <laughs> it's a whole different conversation okay so they, i cannot segue nearly as well as you but i we were we were talking about this idea a few days ago and and i still want to bring it up because i think it's mm-hmm. really interesting so we were debating i was expressing irritation that an <laughs> author will write something and then people will like layer all this interpretation Mm -hmm. onto it that I don't necessarily think is warranted. And, and that like people can get all of this meaning from a work that I don't, that is not inherently tied to the quality of the authorship. And so, right. Like a child could accidentally write something that people find incredibly profound. And in a weird way, you know, the more, celebrated the author the 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 harder people work to derive meaning and i think we were just tossing around like how much credit should an author get for the meaning that people take from the work does a good author lay all of the breadcrumbs for the meaning that people find like even even if they are a little bit vague and people get a lot of meaning from that should they get the credit for that or or is it sort of a a dual like a, like a co-authorship to the final meaning that's a very good question there's a lot okay so oh man yeah i remember us talking about it <laughs> it's a big one jonah yeah, and you have uh you have 13 words so go for it thanks um there's 11 words there's <laughs> so part of it i think you know, at the cost of like contradicting myself, humans, whatever, Americans or humans, I don't know how largely I can generalize this, but, you know, we are semiotic creatures. We do look for meaning. We find meaning. It's, you know, it's why people find Jesus and like waffles every now and then. Right. Um, so that's how our brains function is, is to derive meaning from things. It's why we're so smart. It's why we're such, it's why we're, you know, crushing it as far as primates go. Um, so in that sense, you know, if, if, and this is kind of where like postmodern abstract art comes in and people get irritated with it, where somebody will like bring an empty canvas. And of course, when I literally, when I see a blank page, I'm a writer. When I see a blank page, I don't see a blank page. I see a 300 page novel, right? Like I'm seeing more than that's there. And so, you know, if you put a blank canvas in front of a bunch of artists, they're going to see all kinds of stuff that that isn't actually there. But there is utility in vagueness and emptiness. I mean, something that's very common in, um, even great fiction novels is the kind of emptiness of the narrator. Uh, Fitzgerald does it with Nick Haraway, right, in Gatsby, and you see it a lot in YA novels um, where the, the narrator's least interesting character in the book um, because you're able to, as the reader, project a lot of yourself onto it. And it's deliberate, right? You deliberately leave the narrator empty. If you have a narrator that's like Lolita, for example, where there's a reason that narrator is not left empty. You don't want people to project onto this pedophile, right? You fill him with character traits and motivations and beliefs. Speak for yourself. So, <laughs> it feels very distinct um, because the goal is is not for you to put yourself into the story in that sense. Um, so there is utility in leaving holes in your story or in your art in some ways. So then it becomes an issue of how much credit does the author get for perhaps leaving strategic holes or leaving unintentionally leaving holes that the reader then fills with something very meaningful for them. And that's where we talked about 
I started to veer off into the spiritual crystal realm with like the, you know, when I've heard other artists articulate it, I've known, I'm a huge John Mayer fan. And so anybody who doesn't think he's an artist can kick rocks. No, he's amazing. Also, just in terms of technical proficiency, that man can play so many different instruments at an incredible level. You know, I remember he articulated once. He said he has a song called Three by Fives from the first album, Room for Squares. And he says he doesn't know how he wrote that song. And it's a better song than he deserves. And I know a lot of artists who have articulated that. When I go back and read some things I've written, I generally don't remember writing it. I generally don't feel like I could recreate it if I needed to. There is this weird element of muses at work with art. I mean, um, there's this fact, cut me off literally whenever. I will ramble about this forever. But (laughs) there's this fascinating article I read years and years ago about the kind of continuum from um, schizophrenia to autism. They place these things on a continuum of essentially... um, tolerance for sensory input and they basically argued you know with backing and with chemical analysis of dopamine and serotonin levels that schizophrenia is essentially when your uh, filter breaks down and you're perceiving everything at once and you don't have the mechanisms to differentiate between them so you're hearing voices because of course there's sound i mean your fridge is making noise your computer makes noise there's all these sounds and your brain is finding meaning in them where there perhaps isn't intended to be any and autism on the other side is, is the opposite of that, where your basically brain filters everything out, even social cues and nonverbal communication and all these things to make it very difficult to find meaning in things that other people can find meaning in. Um, and so- it explains a lot for me. <laughs> it actually, I found it super explanatory. I thought it was really fascinating. And so from a creative standpoint, your job is to turn off your filter, right? Your job is to let everything in and to perceive as much as you can and to make that into meaning and sometimes things will get through that you don't necessarily know how to craft but it'll appear in the work and there has to be you know i don't know i don't know if you give the author credit for creating it but i think the author deserves some credit for the act of opening themselves up that much to so many different stimuli yeah i think that i think that makes a lot of sense i think that's a good place to leave it i don't know what do you guys think that was a, i don't Thanks, think we could end yeah, it a better way that was good <laughs> this has been this has been awesome I'm I'm so happy that that you agreed to come on. Yeah, man. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I'm it's been sorry. great. I, I'm sure I rambled, and I don't know how much sense I made. No, but you can edit it. It was it was fantastic. <laughs> no, I'm 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 serious. It, it it was one of my favorite episodes for sure. Yeah, hope to have Moses on again. Uh, see you, see you next time.